0: greatest startup idea won't get you far if you, in the end, can't really execute.
1: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Christoph, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
1: You are the co-founder and CIO at Scandit, the leading technology platform for mobile computer vision and augmented reality solutions for enterprises. Before we talk about your impressive story from startup to unicorn, I actually want to start with your personal background. You obtained your master's in business administration and computer sciences from the University of Zurich here in Switzerland, but you also spent some time in Sweden during your studies. You went to the MIT in the United States. So I wonder, how has your international education actually shaped you?
0: Yeah, to be honest, that was a really, really important experience for me. Um, Sometimes I feel um, that I had no idea back then uh, before Really going international of um, what was even possible. Um, the, the sort of careers that I had in mind for myself when I was an undergrad student they were really mo- more focused on uh, tra- traditional careers in banking, taking care of uh, some exciting legacy systems at banks, for example. That is something that I actually told my uh um my colleagues during my studies that that was something that i was interested in and then when i when i um went to sweden my whole experience really changed quite a bit and i was working very closely with a professor in sweden who introduced me to research and that was really the first time when i realized that um there was so much more um than you know, that sort of traditional career path that you would uh, typically have in mind back then, or that I would have in mind back then. And I realized that the world of research was super exciting, and that really then led me to a PhD, and the PhD was a super inspirational time for me, a very um, um, challenging time as well, um, but super inspirational in the sense that it really really led me to the path of entrepreneurship.
1: So you then actually also spent some time at ETH as a researcher right afterwards. And I also wonder, was it then never the option or the the career path for you to become an academic yourself?
0: It was, I think, both, you know, or in in many things that I do, I don't really have, like, an absolutely clear goal, and I need to achieve that um, in order to achieve happiness. And when I started my PhD, I thought that could be an option to become an academic and I wanted to do really good academic work um, but you know things uh, changed um, I had kept an open mind and we we had this business opportunity in front of us all of a sudden at uh, ETH or maybe not even all of a sudden but we had it in front of us and um, for me it was then clear that, that would, would definitely be something that I, I tried to be honest. I also didn't particularly enjoy writing papers. That was nothing that I ever came to, to, to really like very much. So that was kind of an easy, an easy decision there.
1: Was it then also during the, the research part when you got in touch with entrepreneurship? Because you were working at the M Lab, right? A joint venture between ETH and, and HSG, where you actually then also saw a breeding ground for startups. So please tell us a bit more how you actually then found your way from academics into the entrepreneurial world.
0: Yeah, Um, the M Lab was was one important factor for me to to join ETH Zurich and that particular research uh, group. Before ETH, I um, was very um, I I I was already very active, uh, kind of in uh, in industry. I started a a business um, before Scandit um, when I when I was much much younger, and I was always enjoying work a lot. And for me, the university was not something that could really be the, the, the main um, the main topic in my life. The, 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 um, what I, I needed to actually uh, feel that I was doing something that would contribute immediate value to a problem that uh, was out there. And um, so when I was in Sweden, I was interested in um, research but at the same time, I didn't really want to give up my standing or my, my activities that I had in, in, in business. And um, the MLab was attractive because it combined relevant industry projects with uh, research. It was attractive also because it combined people with the uh, scientific, with a computer science background, with people uh, more from the business administration side, from the University of South Carolina. And I, I really chose that particular research group based on uh, MLab. I was looking at many different research groups, um, but really, really wanted to get into that group. And um, the exciting thing about MLab was that we had research projects with different players from Deutsche Telekom, Systems to SAP to Nokia, entity Docomo, uh, the Japanese um, carrier. And we were doing applied research for these companies to help them develop an understanding of strategic topics that were going to be important for their businesses. And that is fascinating. Um, we had exposure to really, um, you know, to, to, to topics that were going to become relevant. A few years down the road not stuff that was immediately relevant for these businesses mm-hmm. and of course in in the time when mobile was really taking off um, that was super inspirational and and led us to uh, look at multiple business ideas that um, we thought in the in the future could become relevant
1: what happened then when you were looking at these business ideas because eventually then in 2009 you started your own company scanned it obviously But what happened in between? How do you go from, oh, we look at interesting business ideas and opportunities to, okay, we're really going to start our own company?
0: Yeah, the funny thing is that um, I basically joined that research group and um, my professor immediately sort of paired me with uh, Christian, who is one of my co-founders. I came into the research group and I, I think my professor was under the impression that I was sort of Mm business-minded, and he knew that Christian was business-minded too, so he made us talk right away. And Christian and I did talk, and I remember it was, I don't know, the first or the second week at ETH when we um, ended up on the terrace of um, the the Institute building. It was a beautiful um, autumn day, and we started to discuss um, business ideas, it was really sort of random. We just sat down and you we were like, hmm, yeah, you know, would be cool to eventually start a business. What, what ideas have you had? What, what opportunities do I see? And this was really very, very random. And we went through so many iterations with different ideas. Um, some of them made more sense. Others made less sense. We sometimes tried to write a little bit of a business plan. Of course, we never really had the time. Um, but... The, the sort of backdrop of that time was that it would make sense to eventually, or it would be cool to eventually, start a business. At the same time, we were working on uh, research uh, topics in the field of Internet of Things. Back then, we, we called it ubiquitous computing, pervasive computing. And the um, idea, the, the guiding idea there was that we wanted to make the world around us interactive. So, mobile was new. Um, not just cell phones, but, you know, stuff like RFID um, or NFC um, or, or, or PDAs even. You know, this was, mm-hmm. this was long ago. And we were interest, interested in how we could offer digital services basically in any context of your everyday life. So you would walk up to um, a real-world object, be it an art exhibit in a museum, or be it a shelf in a retail store, that you would have these objects there in the real world and you wanted to consume or access digital information. Mm-hmm. And that was what all our research was, was about. And um, in this context, already when I joined, barcodes played an important role. So the research community saw barcodes as one of the, uh, the, the, one of the possible entry points, so to say, into the real world. So you have a device like a PDA back then or a cell phone that allows you to access digital services with a screen and to interact with the digital services, but the link that was missing was the link to the real world and barcodes and RFID were the technologies that could offer that link into the real world. So many research groups had been experimenting with different um, you know, kind of proprietary barcode formats that have nothing to do with the barcode that is used in, in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our research group, we had such a proprietary barcode format as well, uh, the visual codes, as we called it back then. And we started to, or one of my first research projects was to, to play around with, with those visual codes. And um, as we were... Exploring more and more applications around that technology of scanning some type of visual marker or identifier, um, we started to wonder, what about scanning the ordinary supermarket barcodes, the retail barcodes, with a camera? Camera phones were something new back then, right? So it wasn't that uh, barcode, uh, that cell phones would have always had cameras. It was something new, novel to explore, and that's what we did. And um, in the course of that, we found out that we can actually scan um, a regular supermarket barcode with this, you know, old clunky uh, Nokia um, uh, smartphone from, from back in the day. And that was novel, it was absolutely novel. And we landed a a story in the newspaper because that was news and noteworthy. And um, um, all of a sudden we had um, people approaching us from the industry, wondering what this was all about and inquiring about possible applications. And that's when we realized, okay, this has commercial uh, potential. And um, from then on, it was still a, a long journey to really bring this to the um, um, to the customers, mm-hmm. because the stuff didn't really work initially. It was um, obviously research. It worked on a certain type of phone only with um, you know barcodes in perfect conditions. It worked only when the lighting was perfect. It was a problem to even deploy the technology onto cell phones because back in the day you needed to connect um, your Nokia phone with a USB cable to your Windows laptop, install the Nokia PC suite on your Windows laptop, download the app, and so on. It was a totally different, um, different environment. And it was clear that there was potential, but it was also clear that the time was not really right yet because the practicalities just didn't work out. And so we continued with our research. We spoke to companies, industry partners, and um, I remember a visit to a Swiss retailer. Um, I don't remember exactly; must have been the year two thousand and seven, or no, before even. And we um, we really sensed that there was so much interest in this, and they were already um, you know dreaming of possible applications on on, on the retail in in the retail store. But again, we could not get the technology into the hands of of our customers, potentially. Um, We still started to write business plans. We started to participate in um, uh, competitions such as Venture Lab, Venture Mm -hmm. Kick. And um, what really changed things for us then was the availability of the iPhone. Because all of a sudden you had the concept, you had the notion of apps where you could just download an app. You didn't need a cable to deploy an app to, uh, to the cell phone. And uh, when the iPhone was released, basically for us, it was clear, okay, now this, this whole thing that has been bubbling for a long time and it was clear for us that something was gonna come out of this, this whole thing is now really going to happen. And that's, that's basically when, when, when uh, things got really exciting.
1: It's crazy, so basically you we're a bit ahead of the time, but then the, the yes. technical development basically picked up speed and then suddenly what you were trying to solve became possible thanks to the technological advancements, right? Exactly. We were
0: dependent, so we had a technology, um, but we were dependent on another technology which had yet to become available.
1: But then you were ideally positioned because you exactly knew the problem that you were solving. You had already talked to retailers. And you were just waiting for the solutions from a technological standpoint to be ready to deliver what you were looking for.
0: Yeah, that sounds really cool. To be honest, it <laughs> wasn't exactly like that. Um, I remember. I still remember. I think um, it was at one of the venture kick uh, competitions where where we pitched, and um, the feedback there was. I still remember, it was uh, Beat who said this, this is a technology looking for its applications. (laughs) But what what really is the application? And I think that was spot on because we were experimenting with so many applications. That was really also kind of the spirit that we had at ETH in that research group. We were looking at a ton of different applications Mm -hmm. of, of barcode scanning. We had wild ideas. And when we decided that we were going to start Scandid as a company and try um, try a, a business idea. We initially focused on um, price comparison because there were all of these different applications. And we, we were torn between the idea of getting the technology into the platform, talking to Nokia, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, starting our own business, but... Which application to pick? Because barcode scanning, it can mean anything. So many possible applications. Is it allergy checks? Is it price comparison? Is it ethical shopping? Vegetarian, vegan products, whatnot. There's so many different applications. We were talking to the likes of Nokia. That was basically our initial, our very initial bet was that we wanted to get the technology into a mobile operating system uh, platform. Um, Everyone was always interested, but I guess they were smart enough. The bigger uh, handset manufacturers were a little smarter than us because they were also wondering, like, what is then really the possible application? So this never led anywhere. And um, we were basically sitting there with all of these ideas of possible applications. And in the end, we just had to pick one. And we picked price comparison because we saw that this, is, this was something that had a little bit of market traction. There were others out there that were trying to um, offer this. And we felt that we had a unique advantage to um, offer price comparison based on, on, on barcodes, but with a better barcode scanning technology. So the essential step, the, end, the essential step of interacting with a real-world product would be so much better with scanned Our user experience that we could offer would be superior, and that would then allow us to uh, capture the market for price comparison apps uh, in the emerging mobile space. So that was the thesis back then. We, we did that, and we had a fully functioning, really cool, slick, nicely designed app for price comparison. On iOS and Android, and then also on uh, Nokia Symbian, um, mm-hmm. no, sorry, Nokia Windows uh, back in the day. So we covered everything, the entire market. We focused on the US because we felt like that was the largest, most homogenous um, um, environment to launch such a product. We wrote scrapers to collect prices from online shopping websites we had a price database of uh, 25 million products wow we were ready to launch yeah it was it, it was quite an effort to really collect all these all these prices and we were we were ready to launch um, i think that was around the year 2011 10 10 11 and we we went live with um scandit the name Scandit actually originates from from the branding that we had then. The bandit that steals the best uh, price, so to say. And uh, we had cool branding and we launched in the US and we had downloads. I still remember I was sitting there uh, looking at the backend, waiting for the first requests coming in, expecting something like a hockey stick. Didn't quite work out as well. It wasn't exactly the hockey stick, but... um, we, we had users who, um, who started to compare prices with our app, but we realized that in the end, we weren't growing fast enough in this space. We kept the service live for, for quite a while. We had a growing user base, um, but we also had lots of people reaching out to us and asking us about the scanning technology so in the end this this app that we launched and that should have become the ultimate business of Scandit was a marketing vehicle it was a way to um, um to really put, get the technology into people's hands to discover how well it works mm-hmm. and to make people excited that was not something that we had planned for but that's how it turned out and so many businesses approached us and were asking hey Where did you get that scanning technology from? We want it as well. We have a different application. And that was the moment when we realized, hey, maybe we need to pivot here because really, you know, it's like the gold rush, right? The mobile gold rush. Um, When you have the the gold rush, you can either dig for the gold yourself or you can sell the shovel. So we decided that we were gonna sell the shovel and uh, enable businesses to do barcode scanning and start licensing the technology. We packaged the technology into an SDK, and uh, we did another launch, basically in the year 2012 mm-hmm. at TechCrunch, where we really went live, uh, positioning ourselves as the mobile scanning company.
1: And then you can suddenly, out of the blue, you know, have the different use cases that you're mentioning because you just license your software, to the scanning technology, mm-hmm. to the companies, right? Exactly. Great. Exactly. So along the way, you mentioned Christian. You you met at ETH. You also have a, a third co-founder, Samuel. How did you meet him, and how did he join the co-founding team?
0: Yeah, Samuel and I uh, know each other from from uh, from back at the University of Zurich. We both studied at the University of Zurich. The funny thing is that we actually didn't really know our uh, know each other during those days um, because we we both. Um, weren't really that much at the university. We kind of met quite late. Um, it was almost graduation time where it was like, ah, okay, uh, nice to meet you. So- Oh, you also studied you were, here. You were hanging out here as well for the, for the past four years. <laughs> and it was, it was a, a very interesting um, um, encounter because um, he was one of the few people that I met who said that they were gonna do research. He was gonna do a PhD and I had the same plan. So that's why it was kind of um, obvious that we would stay in touch. And um, we, we basically kept in touch during the times when we were doing our PhDs. He um, did it in a different group than I uh, did it. But you have similar pro- problems and challenges when you when you do your PhD. So we, um, we, we kept in touch and basically developed a friendship during that time, which um, then, of course, also led to him hearing about all that barcode stuff that I was doing with Christian and at some point he was done with his PhD and I knew that he was um, definitely interested in entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. at some point um, it was kind of obvious that um, I had to make the two of them meet and uh, I think it was pretty pretty immediate that uh, there was a match and uh, there we had our team.
1: Amazing. And how do you actually complement each other? I'm sure you all have, you know, the different skills and strengths that you bring to the team. Was that always clear from the beginning about how you split roles and who would focus on what tasks?
0: It changes a little bit over over time. I think initially um, it was not all that obvious. We were three dudes with a PhD in computer science. That's really a lot of diversity in the team <laughs> that you have there. And, um, and then we, we also, all of us had some type of business background as well. And it really was not clear who was going to do that, going to do what. Um, Christian, with his electrical engineering background, um, he knew more about signal processing um, than. Than Samuel and me. So that meant that for core barcode scanning technology, he was probably going to be the best fit. Yeah. I knew about backend and web software development, scalable infrastructures. So I was going to be in a good position for, for all the web development and the, the database stuff. And obviously you needed coders, right? We needed to, to write that, that software. So there you had your Two team members that were going to write code, and it was kind of obvious who was going to write uh, which which part of the code.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we also needed <laughs> needed a CEO. Samuel was Samuel was definitely um, the the one who was sort of most business minded. He he also um, obtained um, a, a master's degree really in economics from from the University of Zurich, so that was also kind of a natural fit. Um, but this then changed over the years. At some point, um, we realized that we really needed um, someone who was looking after product strategy. We couldn't just all be coding, and product strategy would kind of naturally emerge. And then um, Christian um, offered to take over the position of um, VP product. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's still doing today. We decided to split the responsibilities. I was going to move more into engineering management, software development management, and uh, that's how I basically ended up with my, with my role. Initially, I was also doing some some COO stuff, and that was mostly, um, you know, motivated by my desire to also be involved with uh, with, with business topics. I love that. Um, it was one of the motivations for me why I um, thought the entrepreneurial path was was really exciting, because I could often not really make up my mind. I'm interested in so many things, and I always found that challenging at the university to really decide, okay, I'm going to do computer science and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And the idea of joining a company and then just doing one thing was just not super appealing to me, and... Um, in entrepreneurship, you have to basically have your hands a little bit in all the different uh, topics, and that was super appealing to me. So that's why in the beginning, I was also doing um, a lot of work around you know um, legal topics and, uh, and 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 other sort of COO type uh, issues, and and I enjoyed that a lot.
1: Amazing. I also quickly want to talk about your customers. Before you said, you're now selling the, the shuffle instead of the gold itself. So do you have anything of like the typical Scandit customer today and can talk a bit more about the use cases?
0: Yeah, so our, our main verticals today are in uh, retail and in transport and logistics. Your typical Scandit customer would be a retailer who is forward-thinking and who wants to uh, create the best experience for their customers, to make processes for them as easy and smooth as possible, self-checkout being an example. But a retailer who also wants to make their internal processes more efficient, save cost. And um, also make the experience for their employees smoother and uh, more 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 pleasant. So that is the uh, typical typical customer. In terms of use cases, barcodes are everywhere. When you think of retail, you know this ranges from inventory counts to more kind of uh, new use cases that that came up or were even accelerated now in in the pandemic that um, we we had recently. Um, um, Use cases such as buying something online, but then picking it up in the store, Mm -hmm. um, where you basically need to uh, equip a lot of people in your retail store with barcode scanning technology, but you don't necessarily want to Um, buy a dedicated device to everyone that costs a lot of money but the cell phone is something that everyone has so you can give that technology that is needed to perform these processes into your employees hands at very little cost.
1: Fantastic. If you need to build a great website design or would like to upgrade your existing site Tasnadi & Co. are a digital agency with expertise in building websites fast and efficiently. I can tell you from my personal experience working with them at Rentouch that they have an incredibly competent and responsive team. The tool they use is Webflow, a no-code website builder with growing popularity. And this means you get a clean code and no restrictions on how the website looks. Your design can be customized to exactly how you envision it, unlike what happens with theme-based website builders. It's also very easy and cost-effective to maintain, edit and expand your site. And you can have a simple website up and running in a week for a very reasonable fee. Go to tasnadi.net forward slash Webflow to find out more. Again, that's tasnadi.net forward slash Webflow. And I guess your secret sauce along that whole process is your scanning technology, obviously, because you do that incredibly fast and incredibly well. Can you talk a bit more about the details there? I know this is probably proprietary technology that you don't want to share too much about, but how are you actually able to scan the barcodes that quickly? Because that seems to be a game changer in the industry of what you're doing.
0: It is, it is. The the, the kind of first and most important thing to realize is that everything happens on the cell phone. So there is no cloud involved. Um, That's kind of obvious today, but you know, during the very early days, it would have been an option to mm-hmm. take a picture, upload it to the cloud and process it there. That's nothing that we ever did. Right from the start, we did the entire image processing on the cell phone. That means, of course, that you have to use the constrained resources that you have on a cell phone as smart as possible. A cell phone doesn't have the same computing power that you have on your, on your laptop. At the same time, we need to process as much information that we can extract from, from the the image as we possibly can to deliver the best performance. So it's a lot about speed, a, a lot of a lot about writing algorithms that really perform um, efficiently on, on your cell phone. The other thing um, that is also important to realize is that you often have images that don't really look very good on your cell phone because when you scan a barcode you're you're doing this a little bit differently or you're you're basically holding your phone or moving your phone a little bit differently than when you're taking a a, a picture a photograph because you're often moving the cell phone the light is often not good you have you have glare coming up from uh, from or um, from, from harsh lighting in, in a retail store environment. And what you have are a lot of problems, for example, like blur. Your image that you need to process that contains a barcode is super washed out. That comes from the fact that you're moving your cell phone, for example. When you move your phone, you don't have a crisp, crystal clear image. Mm-hmm. So we need to get that blur out of the image before we can really decode the barcode and um, that's an interesting challenge and it's a challenge that can be solved in a sort of traditional way um, you know deblurring. blurring you have it in, in photoshop for example it takes a couple of uh, milliseconds on your powerful um, or tens of milliseconds on your powerful um, machine on your powerful laptop we need to make that happen instantly in very few milliseconds on a more resource constrained device and so it's all about finding smart ways of of de-blurring for example that's just one of these examples and of course um, you know in 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 the beginning this was all kind of traditional image processing approaches now in the meantime machine learning has uh, changed this quite a bit and a lot of this uh, it contains also exciting, novel machine learning approaches.
1: Right. And that's probably also, you know, the technolo- technological part there with the smartphones, because when you started out, the smartphones were even less powerful, much, much less yes. powerful than they are today. So I can imagine that must have been a huge challenge to do the resource-intense calculations on these not-so-powerful smartphones. How do you pull that off? Because that, that's really a big, big challenge that you have to solve from a technical perspective. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then, I mean, maybe just for comparison, right, so the, the initial version that we had of the scanned software, it worked with images that had a resolution of 360 by 240 pixels. I mean, this is, by yeah. today's standards, this is unbelievable. Um, how, how do you pull that off? In the end, it's engineering. Engineering is always working on a problem defining the problem, what really is your problem, what are potential approaches that can solve the problem, evaluating these approaches systematically, um, be honest about the results, compare the results carefully, select the the best approach, rinse and repeat. That's engineering. And Mm -hmm. in the end, I think we have been relatively disciplined in our engineering approach. and that has led to quite stable results and to a continuous path forward where we little by little improve the technology and um, eventually arrive um, at a level where we can say, yeah, this is really something that our, our users and our customers uh, enjoy using. It's all about the usability at the end.
1: But you make that sound almost easy. I, I mean, imagine for, from my perspective, from the outside perspective, without having the technical knowledge, this looks incredibly hard to do. And I think what you did is a fantastic job of engineering. So you make it almost like, yeah, we had this discipline, we did this and that, and then we had a good result. You make it almost sound easy, but I I can imagine that was really hard and difficult to pull off, no? It is
0: difficult to be disciplined. Yeah, That is true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, um, Yeah, in the end, inspiration is one part, right? Inspiration yeah. gets you far. It's the same in engineering, but also, you know, with startups in general, right? The best idea, the greatest startup idea won't get you far if you, in the end, can't really execute. And that ability to execute and deliver stable results step by step is what makes the difference in building a company or in building or in solving a complex engineering Product, and I think in the end this is a little bit what what is at the core of of Scandit culturally also. Whether you apply it to business or whether you apply it really to my personal field of engineering, mm-hmm. I think that is what what, what shaped Scandit in a, in a sense.
1: Wow, I I love that because I think we often hear about the overnight successes, right? But they are not overnight mm-hmm. successes. They were like no. ten years in the making, and that discipline that you mentioned these small improvements every day, that's what actually leads to an overnight success from the outside.
0: I think that's exactly the, the right way to summarize it. And Scandit is a, is a very good example to see that it takes time. We have been around to block for a while, and <laughs> um, it's, it's not always been easy and not always been obvious, but you just have to keep at it and uh, continuously improve in, in, in small steps. Okay. And uh, yeah, in, in a sense, it's really also about almost say being, being a little bit more disciplined than your competitors.
1: Right. Yeah. So with your success and in, in your business case that you found and basically the, the companies that you acquired as customers, you also, of course, grew, grew as a company. So today you have more than 400 employees that work for Scandit and you're basically not really a startup anymore. You're becoming a mature company. Yes. And I wonder, how do you actually manage that growth? Do you have any big learnings or, or big key takeaways that you can share with our audience when it comes to managing growth from startup to a more mature company?
0: I'm tempted to say that my answer is, again, not going to be you know about the big revelation. In the end, it's small steps. In small steps, you improve your product. It's the discipline that you apply to management as well. I, I mean obviously I had no idea what I was doing in the beginning. I had my, my management experience was from my, from my twenties when I was managing, I don't know, a team of five software developers, but that was it. And that was long ago. And it was anyway, totally different, totally different time. You just, you just start and you use your um, best intuition I was very, very lucky to have had really great people um, on my team initially. Some of the first hires that we made—they have been—they—they were—they were challenging. Um, I had some really good conversations with those people, and actually, they're still on board. They—they're still at Scandit. Great. Who have taught me many a lesson about management, where people would, would simply tell me outright that this was not the right, in their opinion, this was not the right way to, uh, to, to, to manage things. Mm-hmm. And um, I took the feedback, reflected on it, and um, changed my approach. In hindsight, they were so right, I had no idea. And um, I think that has been an, an important lesson to me. Um, another important lesson is that you can't control everything. I, it's a, a kind of maybe a very, very sort of um, personal thing that I want to deliver perfect results. And if you want to do that, You easily end up in a situation where you have to you feel like you have to control everything. That is exhausting and it doesn't scale. And when you build a company, you have to give that give that up. I think it's probably an interesting question because initially be successful it takes a little bit of that control um controlling attitude because Mm -hmm. you need to be absolutely passionate passionate about delivering the best product. so you really need to be obsessed about the details but then as the team grows you also need to let go and give room for your team members to step up take up responsibilities and really be in charge and that um, is a transition that you you absolutely need to to, to make you, to me it's in, to, to me in management what has, what has always been important is to really empower people to take responsibility them, themselves and that's really for, for me also today that's one of the most um, important guiding thoughts when uh, when managing the team to not get in the way of people to try to um be mindful of their time and let them do their work and not, you know, uh, schedule too many meetings, for example, but to to, to really um, have faith in the team members that they will figure out what what a good way to solve the, the, the problem is and to give them the freedom that they need to explore the right path.
1: Right. Did he also, to, you know, develop your leadership skills, did he also get any help from the outside? Did he work with any coaches or anyone else to sort of get help and develop yourself in that regard?
0: That was relatively late that we as a management team at Scandit uh, brought in a a management coach to help us set up um, a a certain management cadence, for example, the way how we report on our metrics and, and things like that. It was not so much of, you know, kind of personal coaching and it was really kind of for the entire management team of, roughly nine, ten people it scanned it. Mm-hmm. Personally, I have to say, the biggest coaching that I I received was from my co-founders. It's the it's the dialogue that you have with your co-founders, or at least I was lucky enough to have co-founders, where I would often learn a lot from uh, just sharing my experiences with them, receiving feedback, input, how, how do they see it, how would they approach um, a certain management issue. So that has been very fruitful for me.
1: Wonderful. And I guess that's also what keeps you going in tough times because they're always there in every entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a good co-founding team, that's really what keeps you pushing and going in the tough and difficult times.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Now, if you look at today, there are more than 100 million phones using Scandit. You have offices in six different countries and also reached unicorn status with your company. What's next in your world domination plan?
0: (laughs) Well, we're going to... Achieve word domination with uh, Shellview, our latest product. At least word word domination in retail. Let's maybe make it a little bit smaller. Sure. Um, Shell, Shellview is our, our next um, um, product that we, we launched earlier this year. Um, it is, this is still an evolving product. The idea is that we want to offer retailers a platform that lets them better understand how their retail floors really look like. What products are out there? Are they labeled correctly? Are they placed in the right spot on the shelf? It's a big problem for retailers that they have um, products with, with wrong prices, for example. And what we really do there is that we are placing our computer vision technology, so not just the barcode uh, technology, but really also object detection, OCR technology. We use We use a combination of those approaches and we use um, um, robots, cleaning robots, actually, and we piggyback on those cleaning robots that have cameras to develop an understanding of uh, the shop floor. You could almost say it's like Google Street View, um, Uh but... In real time, you know, with kind of ongoing updates, because the cleaning robots right. they're used every night, uh, every night. Mm-hmm. So we have a real time understanding of what's going on the sh- on the shop floor, and based on that, we can offer these uh, services to retailers that will make them more um, efficient. But that will also allow them to launch new services for. For the people who visit the store, you can think of you know navigating through uh, the retail aisles, for example. So that is the latest thing that we're developing, and um, of course, me being a techie, um, I found that su- I, I find that super exciting. There's a lot of really cool challenges in there.
1: That sounds mind blowing. So cool, amazing. It is. It is. Yeah. Do you also have any IPO or exit plans? Probably you're already getting too expensive to get acquired one day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you know, we'll have to see what the future brings for us. Um, of course, IPO is um, something that could potentially be an option for us. Um, we're, we're looking at, um, at primarily creating value for our customers. We believe that if we do that, we will be an attractive target for a potential acquisition or a potential um, IPO. Um, could be a cool IPO story as well. Um, of course, IPOs are exciting because you retain your identity as a company. And um, you know we really need to focus on creating customer value because that will make us successful economically. And with that success, um, all the options will be on the table.
1: Very exciting future ahead of you, for sure. What are your plans personally? Do you plan to, you know, stay in your role because you have again many more technologies and use cases to build or do you also have other plans to for example focus more on investing in startups or doing something differently?
0: I mean, it's it's, it's the old saying but you're really attached to your company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you started with three guys, now we're approaching 500 people and um, it's been a long time and Scandit is dear to me, so I'm not going anywhere. I'm also really happy in the role that I have, um, today. Um, of course, there's a lot of cool engineering challenges ahead of me. I can still learn a lot. The team is still growing and, um, the challenges ahead will be slightly different, right? Kind of being, uh, more, more on the growth and, and the management side, um, I'll continue doing this for as long as I can create value, hopefully. Who knows? At some point, there might be someone else who um, does a better job at this. This is, the, this is how it goes, right, um, when, when you build a companies. But I'm, I'm perfectly happy where I am and I'm um, uh, looking forward to, to, to facing these
1: challenges. Amazing. Christoph, to wrap up today's episode, we also have prepared some rapid fire questions for you. So I'm going to either give you a choice between different options or a short question, and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? All right. Where do you go to think?
0: To the forest on Jürgen.
1: Oh, nice. Software or hardware? I think that's a clear one. Software. 100%. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Ooh,
0: um, uh, just shy five hours.
1: VC money or bootstrapping?
0: Next time, VC money. We bootstrapped it a little bit too long last time.
1: Got it. And the last one, product or sales? Product. Perfect, Christoph. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really impressive what you've built with Scandic, and we are super excited to see what the future brings for you and. Maybe, who knows, we have a Swiss startup IPO soon. All the best and lots of success.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Silva.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's show. This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media.